Hello, I'm Michael Desch. I'm the Brian and Janelle Brady Director of the Notre Dame International Security Center and the PAC-EJD Professor of International Affairs at the University of Notre Dame. You're joining us for Outside the Box. My partner in crime in this enterprise is Jim Webb, a distinguished fellow of the Notre Dame International Security Center, who requires no introduction, but I'll give him one anyhow. He's a former Democratic presidential candidate, Secretary of the Navy, Assistant Secretary of Defense, and Marine Officer Vietnam Era. Good to be with you again, Jim. It's been a while. Yeah, it has. And this is going to be, I think, a, a really good discussion today on a on an issue that's been dealt with probably maybe a little too delicately up to now. Yeah. Um, well, our guest today will not be delicate. Yeah. <laughs> He'll well, fit so right in. Hey, right. I got a question, though, for you, Jim. The uh, Our listeners won't be listening to this on June 22nd, uh, 2023, but it seems to me that that date is auspicious in an important way. I mean, Panzers in Ukraine, June 22nd, the beginning of Operation Barbarossa, the Nazi invasion of uh, the Soviet Union in 1941. Geez, what a coincidence, huh? Well, let's see what we can contribute to, to the truths <laughs> yeah. and, the, and the issues and the concerns. Let me yeah. just I'd just like here. to say, since, uh, since we are going to be discussing Ukraine in in depth, and I and I think in a, as a result of a of an incredibly powerful piece, in my my opinion, from Harper's, we're lucky to be, have Chris Lane here, one of the uh, the two authors of the piece, to to talk about it. And you know, when I read this piece, and I read it again last night, and it's it's very thorough, and in in my view, it's quite balanced, and it it lays out a concern that. I don't think is being addressed enough. And I go back to the time when I was uh, Assistant Secretary of Defense and then Secretary of the Navy in the Reagan administration. I spent three years as Assistant Secretary of Defense working as a part of my responsibilities with the NATO countries over there, the NATO militaries over there, talking about mobilization issues and, and these sorts of things. And NATO was a different creature before the uh, fall of the Soviet Union, obviously. The reason for NATO's creation was basically a defensive alliance alliance among countries that had been through an awful lot during World War II. A lot of people think of NATO immediately emerging from the end of World War II. That's not true. It actually was created in 1949. My father had uh, flown and it was an Air Force pilot, had flown in the Berlin airlift even before that. One of the most telling articles that I read in my earlier days when I was a student came from former President Dwight Eisenhower in 1963, October 1963, an important article that was lost because I think in, in the public discussion, because a few weeks after that, President Kennedy was assassinated and the debate on this really uh, never took place. But he basically was saying the five-star general, Supreme Allied Commander Europe saying in 1963 that uh, the American uh, presence in, in NATO was considered to be temporary. Uh, the military presence, the size of it was considered to be temporary in order to allow the European nations that had suffered so much on the ground in uh, 
in World War II to reorient their their economies and be able to take advantage of a number of, a number of things, for instance, like the, the Marshall Plan. But it was not uh, thought, even by 1963, that the United States would be carrying the preponderance of uh, the uh, financing and the, and the size of the military there. When I was in the Pentagon in, in uh, 1984 to 88, there were more than 200,000 American soldiers in Germany alone carrying a huge load. And it, the, the concern there was was great. But then when I came to the Senate, and I'm going to stop here in a minute, when I came to the Senate, uh, the debate really was post-Soviet Union, should NATO expand? And basically from an alliance to a system of protectorates included in it. And I was a strong opponent of that when I was in the Senate, that it did not make good strategic sense for, for this to occur. We haven't seen that debate. And I was just so taken by this piece that Benjamin Schwartz and Chris Lane put together with the, the history of America in NATO and also the history of Europe. Uh, and I'm, I'm really glad that we have Chris Lane here to further discuss this. And it's, it's a delicate issue. Moral courage is a lot more difficult than physical courage. And there's a lot of moral courage in this article. So uh, Chris Lane is here with us today. He's a university distinguished professor at Texas A&M University, and he holds the Robert M. Gates Chair in National Security at the George H.W. or Intelligence and National Security at the George H.W. School of Government and Public Service. He's uh, the author of a lot of important articles and the book, The uh, Peace of Illusions. His co-author, who unfortunately is not with us, uh, Ben Schwartz, is uh, a former literary and national editor at The Atlantic and one-time executive editor of the World Policy Journal. As I understand it, Chris and Ben uh, have written other high-impact articles together, including a piece in the Atlantic Monthly in 2002 called A New Grand Strategy. But you and Ben are uh, boyhood friends from L.A., right, Chris? Well, not quite boyhood friends, but we go back a long way. Almost, I mean, back to the late 80s. Very good friends. And uh, a lot of it is our common interest and overlapping views of foreign policy. Um, another Part of it, a big part of it, is our uh, our feelings about our little four-legged friends, dogs and kitties, um, who are both very important to both of us. I think Ben and I sort of have a different view than a lot of people do about how we see these little guys fitting into our lives. So that, those those are two really important commonalities: the intellectual one, and the love of the little guys. Okay, so the piece Jim is uh, talking about came out in. Uh, Harper's in June of 2023 title is Why Are We in Ukraine? Question mark. Isn't the answer simple, Chris? We're in Ukraine because uh, the perfidious bear under the stewardship of that malefactor of Vladimir Putin invaded Crimea in 2014 and then the rest of Ukraine directly in 2022. Are you like Paul Harvey? You're going to tell us the rest of the story? It goes yeah, well beyond that. There is definitely a rest of the story. And Ben and I, I think we wrote this piece because we thought it's extremely important for the rest of that story to be part of this debate. That story really begins during 1990-91, while the Soviet Union was actually in the process of its 
slow motion implosion. I, I think we're very fortunate that there are two quite recent books that have come out that are very pertinent. Um, most people who have been following this probably know about Mary Surratt's book, Not One Inch. But I bet a lot of people have not seen Vladislav Zubok's book, which is also published by Yale University Press, called Collapse, The Fall of the Soviet Union. And this is really a fascinating and extremely well-documented book. It's a book that, uh, there's certain books that I hold up in my class and I say, if I threw it at you, it would be assault with a deadly weapon. It is thick, but it is extremely well-researched. And what Zubak tells us uh, that is quite important, great importance is that during this period of time, people in both Moscow and Kiev understood fully that if in fact the Soviet Union dissolved, that the prospect of war down the line between an independent Ukraine and an independent Russia was very, very high for a number of reasons, not the least of which is the historic and present Russian interest in its naval base in Sebastopol. And of course, the George H.W. Bush administration also understood this, which is one of the reasons why President George H.W. Bush gave his famous his name, nicknamed by William Sapphire, Chicken Kiev speech in August 1991, where he warned the Ukrainians about the dangers of nationalism. And I think his speech in that respect was pretty prophetic. You know, we could go back and talk about who's to blame. Well, I think in, in some respects, the blame begins with the Bush 41 administration. The reason that the Soviet Union was on the verge of collapse was the failure of the Soviet economy. And I guess, you know, it's hard for us to appreciate as Americans that in 1990-91, there was nothing on the store shelves in, in Soviet cities, including Moscow. It was hard to get food. And I went to a conference um, in Moscow in early September of 1991, when everybody knew that the collapse was coming, but it hadn't yet happened. We were in the hotel that belonged to the Soviet Academy of Sciences. The mayor of Moscow had to have the food that was brought in for our conference accompanied by armed guards so it wouldn't be hijacked and sold on the black market. And so Mikhail Gorbachev, the Soviet leader at the time, tried to press the American government for more aid, financial, economic aid. Uh, I hate to use that overused cliche, a new Marshall Plan. The Bush 41 administration did not do that. I suppose we could have an endless debate. Well, if they had done that, given the level of corruption um, in the decaying Soviet Union, would that aid have actually been used? But, you know, there's actually a, a quote in Zubak's book from Ronald Reagan, who said that if the United States did not try to help Gorbachev succeed in his reforms, we would come to regret it. I thought it was very interesting to see that um, statement from Ronald Reagan. So we have this background, the United States sort of allowing the Soviet Union to collapse when we knew the dangers of that collapse not only with respect to what was known at the times, loose nukes, but particularly, as I said, the, the risk of conflict at some point in time between an independent Ukraine and independent Russia. And in fact, what's very interesting is that there were people in the Bush 41 administration, mostly around then Secretary of Defense Dick Cheney, who actually wanted to encourage the breakup of the Soviet Union. They wanted to encourage that in order to reduce the power of its core element, Russia. And there's actually a quote in uh, Robert Gates's memoirs, I believe on page 91, where he talks about this. Um, and we see 
a lot of echoes in that today, not so much in the public statements of people in in the current administration, the Biden administration, but we see, you know, a lot of the unsourced quotes, you know, attributed to it a senior administration official um, and our senior NATO official. We see, going back to when this war started, a lot of votes that suggest that, and there's actually a story about this in the Wall Street Journal a few months ago, that there are people in the, let's say, the U.S. and transatlantic foreign policy establishment who really regard this war as a chance to permanently reduce Russia's power, eliminate Russia as a factor in international politics. We can discuss whether that's a smart strategy or not. I think it's extremely unwise, but um, all these things are on the table. And uh, then we can go back and talk about the whole debate about what was or was not said to the Russians during the German reunification negotiations. That's an endless morass of going back and forth and trying to sort out the evidence. But I think it's clear, not just from American policymakers at the time, but from people like Hans Dietrich Genscher, who was the then West German foreign minister, from people like French President Francois Mitterrand, that the, the Russians had good reason to believe that as part of the German reunification negotiations, the United States had basically reassured them that there would be no eastward expansion of NATO. Okay, so I got to stop you and correct you because I was at NATO last week. And apropos Jim's point about NATO being temporary in the early 60s, I was in the new headquarters. And let me assure you, it's not a series of double wides. It didn't go in anywhere. In fact, it is uh, incredibly permanent. But they informed us there that, in fact, there's a politically correct phraseology for uh, the growth of NATO that all of us progressive people need to use. We can't talk about NATO expansion. We have to talk about enlargement, something that happened. It's not uh, something that's being done. Jim, when I read Chris and Ben's piece, I thought that the sort of original sin that they identify of the Ukraine war is NATO enlargement or expansion. I'm going to keep saying that. Did, was that your read of it? I've never thought about it in, in, in those terms, but I, I, I do believe that the uh, the expansion uh, in, in certain areas, and particularly with the uniqueness of the Ukraine-Russia historic relationship, that there was a lot of warning uh, going into what, what would happen depending on how uh, NATO was enlarged or expanded. I mean, I think, frankly, I think there's a now a, a NATO office going to come into Tokyo. You know, I mean, this, you know, where's, Nate, Nate, where's Nate. this, you know, <clears throat> this is like grade creep, mission creep, you know. You, um, you got to see the new building, Jim. There is so much room for uh, bureaucrats. Expansion? Pardon? So much room for expansion, Mike? Yeah, expansion, <laughs> not enlargement. Yeah, yeah. So with what you're saying, I, I, that ties into something that I would, I would like to ask Chris to, uh, to give his thoughts on. <clears throat> in the piece and in reality, it seems to me that the, the uh, Americans, a lot of the Americans who have long experience with uh, the diplomatic situation between uh, Russia and the United States and Russia and Europe historically had some pretty strong warnings about 
what would happen and, and how this should happen. George Kennan being one of them that you, you mentioned, but also uh, Bill Burns, William Burns, who in my view, and I've worked with him for years, he is the finest diplomat that I've worked with from the State Department in, in my time. Both of them were laying out a lot of, you know, a lot of concerns that you're not seeing in the, the rush of the American political system itself. And I'd like to get, you get your thoughts on that and then also kind of fold that in, if you could, to the comments that the Biden administration uh, started making early in 22, when generally, um, when you're having a situation like this between two major powers and looking for a way to resolve it, uh, you want your opponent or your adversary in this to, you know, there's got to be a way out uh, unless the way out is to re- have that person removed. And when the president of the United States, you know, uh, labels Putin a, a war criminal and you know all these sorts of things. Uh, that's that's not a not a good uh, good way given the history. So we've got Burns over here and and you know the, Ken and the people who who really understand um, Russia. Uh, and then we've got these sort of flippant remarks. Frankly, unless there was an objective behind them, what do you think about that, Chris? Well, there's there's a lot that uh, you are raising, both of you. Um, And again, I think it's important to go back and look at the historical record and the chronology about how this all unfolded. And it's one of the things that Ben and I tried to do. And I think we were not entirely satisfied. So we're writing a follow-up piece that's going to be in the American Conservative. And I think we're going to go into more detail on this chronology. But as you point out, in the United States, our most esteemed expert on the Soviet Union and Russia, the post World War II era, George F. Kennan wrote op-ed article in the New York Times, I believe it was February 1997, where he pointed out that it was extremely unwise and in the long term would have deleterious geopolitical consequences if the United States expanded NATO. Now, there have been three leaders of Russia slash the Soviet Union since the Soviet Union began to dissolve. One was Gorbachev, the other was Boris Yeltsin, and the third, of course, is Vladimir Putin. Each of them warned a number of times that NATO expansion was contrary to Russian security interests, um, that it made them very nervous, uh, that they felt that American foreign policy is somewhat artistic when it comes to understanding how other states view their place in the world and their security interests. NATO was a Cold War anti-Soviet slash anti-Russian alliance. And what did we decide to do when the Cold War ended? We decided to take that alliance and push it not only to the borders of the Soviet Union, but in the second round of expansion, actually take in the Baltic states, which were part of the Soviet Union. Now, as much angst as that caused the Russians, it was Ukraine that was in a special category. And when the George W. Bush administration at the April 2008 Bucharest Summit proposed that Ukraine be admitted to NATO, and the Germans and the French were apoplectic about that. And so we ended up, as we often do in these situations, with a fudge The fudge was, well, we won't give Ukraine a membership action plan. We're not going to take them in now, but eventually we're going to take them in. So Ukraine was sort of left exposed in one sense, and the Russians were left with the clear idea that Ukraine was going to become a part of NATO. And for historical, geopolitical, economic reasons, 
the idea of Ukraine being anchored in the West, in both actually NATO and the European Union, was seen by the Russians as a grave threat to their to their security interests. And you know, this was made clear to us over and over again. Now, I want to come back to something about the Biden administration and, and just go back to my previous life when I was a lawyer. We all know that in late 2021 and early 2022, the U.S. had extraordinarily good intelligence. We knew what the Russians were planning to do. We basically knew when they were planning to do it. And we knew why they were planning to do it. And you know, the, the Russians sent us a long diplomatic note, I believe it was, I can't remember, it was November, December of 21, where they laid out what their concerns were about the security architecture of Europe. And the number one thing on that list that the Russians had was Ukraine in NATO. Now, we knew this was coming. We knew why it was coming. It seems to me if we'd wanted to avoid war, we might have said to Moscow, well, you know, we sort of understand why you feel this way. So why don't we sit down and talk about it? No, it's all we heard from NATO and Washington was NATO has an open door policy about members and that is going to stand. We're not going to rule out any state that wants to be part of, including Ukraine, that wants to be part of NATO from becoming a member. And so basically, I mean, I would say that was the equivalent of giving the Russians the, for, you know, the finger um, saying we don't care. And, and I think this is this is a pattern that you saw beginning during the Clinton administration when it came to NATO expansion. So we just didn't care what the Russians felt or how they perceived their interests or how they saw their role in the world or how they saw their role, role in Eurasia or East Central Europe. Just didn't matter to us. And, you know, Mike. So, so let me push you just a little bit on that. So when I was at NATO, they served us Kool-Aid and I drank some of it. So. Take that with a uh, grain of salt. But the, the folks in Brussels would say, apropos uh, Russian concerns, uh, two things. One is Ukraine is a sovereign country. NATO membership uh, is a decision that any, or the application for NATO membership is something that any sovereign country can do. Secondly, they would say NATO is uh, an alliance of democracies with a fundamentally defensive orientation. How could the Russians be so neuralgic about the Ukrainians exercising uh, their sovereign right to uh, join a democratic defensive alliance? Well, NATO has drunk its own Kool-Aid. And I think that that is followed. I guess before the new building was finished, I had the opportunity. My wife is a faculty member here, Gabriella Thornton, and she's taken a couple of study abroad groups from the Bush School over to uh, Brussels and Berlin. And we went to the NATO headquarters. And interestingly enough, we were briefed by an Aggie, Texas A&M grad. We never heard of NATO as a military alliance directed at any state. We just heard it's an alliance of democracies who are interested in development and prosperity and human rights and the environment. No, this is a military alliance. It's always been a military alliance. And I guess going back to my theme of America's foreign policy, autism as an American foreign policy establishments, autism. Thing. How has the United States reacted just in the last week to the news that uh, the People's Republic of China is establishing an intelligence gathering outpost in Cuba and a military training facility in Cuba. So we're pretty outraged by that. Well, 
If we're outraged by that, which is pretty minor, why would the Russians not feel threatened by the continual advance in several phases of this relic of the Cold War, this alliance that was designed to contain the Soviet Union slash Russia, and still is, whatever Kool-Aid they're handing out, we shouldn't drink it. We should understand well, what the deal is here. And Bill Clinton, I, I don't get me started on Bill Clinton, but um, yeah, Bill Clinton said a number of things which I found very hard to take. One of which was he said that change is our friend, and being a conservative, I guess, I think change is not always our friend at all. But the other thing he said is several times, and, and the officials have said, oh, Russia has nothing to fear from the eastward push of NATO. It's not directed at them. Well, you know, again, anybody who wants to go back and they want to write me, I've been keeping sort of a log of all the LA, the New York Times, Washington Post, Wall Street Journal, Financial Times articles on U this Ukraine crisis going back to the fall of 21. But when the, when the war started and I actually had an online piece in the national interest. People can look it up. I think it was in March of 2022. I quoted some of the stuff. Western officials made it very clear that this was the opportunity to achieve regime change, get rid of Yeltsin, look at the sanctions that are the intent of the sanctions. These were at, at the beginning intended to be massive sanctions that would crush the Russian economy. I mean, it, it's clear that people in the, the transatlantic security community saw this as an opportunity to weaken Russian power. And I, I love going to Brussels. It's like, you never know that this was a military alliance. And by the way, going back to the opening, I sure hope they, given this is June 22nd, the anniversary of Operation Barbarossa, I sure hope when they gave those leopard tanks to Ukrainians that they remembered to scrub off the Maltese crosses. Let me ask you your thoughts on Parts of your uh, article that I found um, uh, really uh, illuminating, given the way that this conflict between Russia and Ukraine has happened, is whatever you know, whatever the violations of sovereignty that uh, Russia did, and I don't in any way uh, defend that. This is not a situation between the devil and the angel here. And your comments about uh, the Yugoslavian situation really uh, illuminate that reality that we see so often is that uh, we tend to forget or ignore all of the negatives in one country that is being uh, supported. And also the, the machine, by the way, in terms of uh, attacking people who would say something different is pretty powerful. In fact, when you're talking about the American conservative, there's an article this morning in the American conservative by uh, Ted Galen Carpenter talking about the Ukrainian lobby and and uh, how they have gone after anyone, you know, labeling them as uh, if they were pro-Russian, then they have all of these sins surrounding their makeup. Yesterday, I, I saw there was a report by uh, one of the officials in the EU when Ukraine has, has said they're going to apply to the EU saying they can't become a member yet because of all the corruption in Ukraine, that the, there has to be a, a cleansing of that before they would be allowed in the EU. So, you know, this is not black and white. I think would want to be looking at right now uh, is a way to resolve this. Is there is there a resolution to this situation? Because uh, you know, since right now there's there's no real window on this. And one of the things I was thinking about is if you look at the rest of the world, major major places in the world, 
not everyone is aligned with what NATO was saying right now in terms of the validity of of what's going on. And these in, include India, which is a long, uh, long time ally of uh, the Soviet Union and then and then Russia for you know, military parts and now huge import of, you know, Russian oil and these sorts of things. And China has to date not condemned the uh, the invasion. I don't think there's a country in Africa that has in any way condemned it. Brazil also We're, doesn't share our moral clarity. Exactly. You know, you look at BRIC, you know, that's <laughs> Brazil, Russia, India, China, and now I think South Africa. There's got to be a way. There's got to be a way to, to use the leverage of other concerned countries to come in here and figure out how to undo this. I'm, or, or am I wrong, Chris? Well, I, I think, unfortunately, you may be wrong because I think that the United States and, again, the transatlantic security community, I mean, listen to people like Stoltenberg, the NATO secretary general, and others, or listen to uh, the foreign minister of Germany. I always thought that Annalena Baerbach, who's a member of the Green Party, I know Mike, we're old enough, and Jim, we're old enough to remember when the Green Party was organized in Germany, it was supposed to be a, a pacifist, anti-military political party. And now these people are in power and they become increasingly hawkish, what I call, you know, bloodthirsty liberal internationals, fight war for, for whatever idealistic conception they have. So, I, I mean, I really think given the mindset of the blob in Washington and the mindset of the broader transatlantic security committee, community, it's going to be very hard to end this war. But you raise a, a really good set of questions. Now, let me see if I can just respond. First, there's what I think we had in the passage in this article that nobody talked about, I referred to the perception management machine in Washington. I remember when I was teaching Naval Postgraduate School, I had a very good student who was an Army Special Forces officer who was in PSYOPs. And she explained to me this idea of perception management. And, you know, we see this, you know, it's what is perception management? I guess I would say it's very sophisticated lying or distortion of truth. But we see this in operation today. Oh, I mean, we see it not just from the government. We see the government persuading others to sort of take up its view of the world. So when you pick up the New York Times now and you see not opinion pieces, but news articles routinely referring to Ukraine as a democracy. I mean, there's a nice source that we can check. It's called Freedom House. It ranks states on a spectrum of whether they're more or less democratic. Ukraine doesn't do very well. If you go to Transparency International, which is the counterpart source for ranking states according to the degree of corruption, Ukraine doesn't do well at all. It's not the most corrupt state in the world, but it's certainly up there. So, you know, we're, we're taking a state that is dominated by oligarchs. It's really, you know, it's not just Russia that has oligarchs. Ukraine has plenty of them, too. It is not really democracy, but we sort of cleansed them and made them into this knight in shining armor, which they're not. And, you know, we can go into history, which I, nobody wants to do. Well, the New York Times had a story the other week about um, the insignia that many uh, Ukrainian soldiers are using, which goes back to the Nazi era and uh, Ukrainian nationalists who fought alongside uh, Nazi Germany in World War II. Uh, people organized around Stefan Bandera, who was the leader of uh, pro-Nazi Ukrainian nationalists who is a revered leader in the Western Ukraine today. He's the George Washington of Ukrainian nationalists. Right. Well, 
you know, you should be careful who you associate with. Um, it's pretty unsavory character. But that's not the way he's seen in Western Ukraine, right? Uh, your Mike, Mike is absolutely right. So we don't talk about that. You know, the, when the siege of Mariupol, beginning the war, when it was defended by the so-called Azov Regiment, which is linked to the more distasteful forms of Ukrainian nationalist movement, the stories, you know, they sort of, they said, well, yes, these guys, but they just said it and passed right over it without exploring any of the implications. So, you know, we've made these guys into these, uh, you know, models of, all the great virtues of goodness and democracy and freedom, but they're not. And, you know, but nobody in the in the American media or the European media seems to really want to go there. But let's go into sort of the, the other issues about how it's going to take, what it's going to take to end this war. Henry Kissinger was uh, interviewed in uh, The Economist uh, the other week. It's a long interview. You can print out the transcript if you want. Um, look, there's a lot we can always find good about Kissinger, and people always find things to criticize. But Kissinger made a point, which I, as a, quote, realist, unquote, scholar, think is pretty important. You know, understanding what your rivals or adversaries think, what's driving their policy, understanding the need for great powers to accommodate each other, understanding the need for that historic tool of great power politics, which was used historically over the centuries to mitigate the causes of conflict, recognizing another great power's sphere of influence. So, yeah, we want to stick up for sovereignty in Ukraine, but that means ignoring historic Russians' interests and present Russian security interests. And really, what's more important? What's more important? Peace in uh, the ending this war, um, or I guess we shouldn't quite overspill milk, or maybe we should, or the opportunity that we lost to avoid this war at all. Um, I just think that this unwillingness of American policymakers to understand other states' interests, and you know, this goes, I think, to how this war is betrayed. And Mike touched upon this earlier in the conversation. And I think well, you were actually too, too diplomatic, Mike. I mean, Putin is now portrayed as the next Adolf Hitler in many circles. And when you read stuff in the New York Times or the Washington Post, it's all Putin. It's Putin, 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 Putin. I'll bet if you went to the offices of people both in and out of government who are part of the blob and the transatlantic security establishment, you'd find that on their maps, Russia doesn't exist anymore. That that territory is now labeled Putinian. There's no Russian state. There's no Russian political culture. There's no Russian geopolitical interest to go back over the centuries. It's all Putin. And of course, that's ridiculous. I mean, well, let, me, uh, let me, if I may, uh, give you uh, some reaction to what you said, because it's, uh, a lot of it I, I totally agree with. We did lose, and as you mentioned, you know, maybe we lost the ability to preclude this war from happening. And we certainly in that first year also by the, the language of this administration and uh, the motivations of a lot of people you talked about lost the ability to uh, encourage a negotiation. There's there's a lot of news out there that the Ukrainians also were, were willing to negotiate at a certain point and were beyond that. And, you know, I, I just have this uh, feeling that there would be a way to unwind this and maybe not just through the getting NATO to participate in in doing that, but getting some outside uh, powers. And this may be 
maybe something that could happen that may not happen. But, you know, when you talk about NATO and Germany, uh, you know, when I was working with NATO and AIDS, I spent a lot of time with the German army. And they were a good army. And before the Greens, you know, you mentioned the Greens. They had 595,000 soldiers. The Germans had fought the Russians. They were very realistic in terms of casualty estimates and and how this would would uh, take place. Uh, they were, in my, in my opinion, they were the they were the best army in NATO at the time. And when the Greens came in, it was all gone. Uh, I took my son uh, into the, the Germany in in the year 2000 when he finished high school and would stopped at the the German Infantry School, which I I had uh, visited as a former Marine infantry guy a, a couple of times when I was ASD, and uh, and it was like dormant, you know. So now, and this I'm saying this because it's sort of a, a look at NATO writ large. The Germans don't have an army. The, the NATO NATO doesn't really have the kind of military that would do what we're seeing Ukrainians do, but we do. And the Germans sort of has, were hesitant in terms of supporting. Uh, Ukraine with the type of weapon systems that you were mentioning, you know, that you you saw a lot of a lot of hesitations on that, and then it's like, okay, we don't have five hundred ninety five thousand soldiers anymore, but here here's seven tanks, you know, and that sort of in me defines, in my view, defines the way that NATO is looking at this, uh, that there's a a hesitation uh, when a certain uh, orthodoxy takes over in in this kind of a situation where. There are people who would want to see this resolved, um, but aren't saying it right now. And with the right leadership, it could it could take place. And you know, this could be an outsider. You know, China, who we have this very legitimately uh, you know tense relationship with right now, uh, has been you know bringing itself out into the world as. They're the peacemakers. They're the peace set, you know, all over the world that uh, they've made an offer that we had to look at and, and, you know, think about, is that what you want? Is that how you want this resolved? Or what are we, what are we going to do about this? And by the way, on perception management, you're absolutely right. You know, you could see it uh, in full strength in Gulf War One, particularly when uh, uh, the Iraqis went down in Kuwait and all of the 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 stuff that was coming out uh, and that that was the birth really of perception management and it's we see it every day now and you're right not only in the uh, in the uh, military um, there's a lot in in your comments there Jim let's see if um, I can respond um, first part of the perception management is this idea which we've all three of us have just alluded to in the last few minutes that the whole world is with us the whole world is with us against Russia and supporting Ukraine. But as you both have pointed out, um, the global South, so-called global South, including China and Brazil and uh, India uh, and most of Africa, they are not with, and, and some of the Middle East, they're not with us on this. This is this is a U.S. and Western Central European thing. And actually, let's come back to the role of diasporas. I mean, um, our colleagues, uh, John Mearsheimer and Stephen Walt, wrote a book a few years ago about the influence of the American-Israeli political action community, the so-called Israel lobby on American Middle East policy. I'm waiting for somebody to write a book about the influence of the Baltic diasporas and the Ukrainian diaspora on American foreign policy. Now, the book that I mentioned earlier by Zubak, um, Collapse, the Fall of the Soviet Union, makes it very clear that as the Soviet Union was unraveling in 1990-91, that 
The Baltic states and the Ukrainians had the Aspros lobbying in Washington for the independence of the Baltic states from the Soviet Union, for the independence of Ukraine from the Soviet Union. So, you know, these, these groups are influential and they're influential today. And of course, you know, they wrap themselves in all these things for sovereignty, freedom, democracy. Well, you know, sovereignty has always been questionable international politics when great powers are involved. Organized hypocrisy. Isn't that what Steve Krasner at Stanford calls it? That's right. And uh, I think Jim alluded to it earlier. You know, oh, well, we're upholding the so-called rules-based liberal international order in, in this Ukrainian conflict. And part of that is we can't allow states to change borders by force. Excuse me, what did the United States do with the breakup of Yugoslavia and Kosovo? I mean, Kosovo was a you know, historically integral part of Serbia, and we had no hesitation about intervening militarily. I thought you were going to go back further in history and uh, make a candid admission about the occupied Mexican territory that you're <laughs> sitting on down there in Texas. Uh, well, I won't, I, since I have to live here, I'm not going to take any position on that. But um, <laughs> It's water under I mean, the bridge. But if, but if you go, when, when you were living here, did you ever go to San Antonio and go to the Alamo? I did, did you, sure. And so do you remember the, there was a donation box for, quote, the Shrine of Texas Liberty? Right. Um, and up on the wall, they have the names and the places of origin of all the uh, non-Mexicans who died at the... Battle of the Alamo. And they were all from places like Kentucky and Tennessee and Virginia and the Carolinas. It's like, what were they doing fighting Mexico? In they were all Jim's ancestors, perhaps. <laughs> They're my they peeps. All, <laughs> they all wanted other people's land. Um, and so, uh, look, um, I mean, but I think this this idea that, that borders have always been sacrosanct, it's not true. It's never been true in international politics. And certainly the United States has never been uh, a country that uh, has a great record of moral purity on this issue. It's like, how many times have we intervened in other countries' internal affairs? So, so much for their sovereignty. But again, changing borders by force, we did that. We did that in the Kosovo conflict. Um, you know, people don't understand the history and they don't understand why history is such a power. What is it Faulkner said? The past isn't over. Isn't here. The past isn't history. It's not even past. Well, in places like Eastern Europe and uh, former Soviet Union, that's true. And so the, uh, for, for Serbia to have the United States wrench away a place that historically goes back to the origin story of Serbia, well, where was our respect for boards? That's a, and the, why do we not understand, um, you know, sort of the historical origins of this current conflict? Uh, so that on? goes, Chris, to your very interesting observation about, uh, you know, uh, our inability. I don't know if I want to use the term autism for it, but our, our inability to... Uh, understand the historical perspective uh, that's behind a lot of uh, what you and uh, Ben recount, especially in terms of Russian views about uh, what's going on. And you talk in the piece about, you know, the need for old-fashioned diplomacy, but old-fashioned diplomacy is sort of out of fashion these days to say, 
Vladimir Putin is a 19th century man, which I would take as a compliment, a compliment yeah. yeah, is in fact uh, an insult or uh, evidence that you're you're not with the times. Um, and so uh, is it the case that for some reason, you know, we in the West have relegated old-fashioned diplomacy, balance of power politics, spheres of influence to a, a bygone era. Uh, and why is that the case, do you think? Well, you know, when I wrote The Peace of Illusions, I did a lot of uh, archival research and uh, as well as secondary source research. And one of the things I found was, I think it was a quote, I can't remember whether it was then Vice President Henry Wallace or whether it was Cordell Hall. I'd have to go look it up. But it was one of them who gave a speech in 1943 or 44, where he said, talking about the American vision of the post-World War II order, international order would emerge in so many words. We don't believe in the balance of power. We don't believe in spheres of influence. And I sort of thought about that. And I thought about the theme of my book. Well, yeah, of course, we don't believe in the balance of power because since even the days when World War II was still being fought and American policymakers thought about the post-war world they wanted, they didn't want a balance of power. They wanted a big imbalance of power in America's favor. They didn't want spheres of influence because that would mark off certain parts of the world as cut off from the penetration of American ideas, from American economic penetration, from the penetration of American military power. No. They believe, and they still do, and this is goes to the whole unipolar idea, which American policymakers, they may not talk about it so much anymore, but they still believe it, that there should not be any rivals to the United States. And listen, I mean, you can see that we might get into a big controversy about this and need either something, well, we're separated, fortunately, we're doing this in the internet, but I don't know how much disagreement there'd be between the three of us, but, you know, the idea that you can find a lot of evidence that when this conflict began, that there were people in the American foreign policy and transatlantic foreign policy establishments who saw this as a chance to permanently weaken Russia and basically eliminate it as a great power, thus fulfilling an objective that American policymakers had in the late 1940s. Um, what's going on today with China? I mean, somebody ought to go back and read about the effect of the economic oil embargo that the United States imposed on Japan in 1941, and how that sort of pushed Japan to the brink and led them to go to war and attack Pearl Harbor. It's like the United States is trying to strangle China's economic and technological growth and emergence. So, well, how do they respond to that? And why are we trying to do that? Because we don't want a world where there are any competitors, any rivals, any other great powers. So this is why we don't like the balance of power. This is why we don't like spheres of influence, because the whole world, all the parts of it that matter, we consider to be our rightful sphere of influence, whether it's East Asia. And the last time I checked the map, by the way, I thought China's actually located in East Asia and the United States is not. Um, and it's the same thing. We're not an Eastern European country, an East Central European country. We've historically had no great sphere of influence there. Um, until all this NATO expansion stuff started after the Cold War. And so, well, I mean, I'm not going to go into this whole diatribe. People want to read the diatribe, hopefully not just a diatribe, but a reasonable argument supported by a lot of evidence, can read the Peace of Illusions. 
But the United States is a hegemonic power. It seeks to expand its power. It consistently has sought to expand its power since World War II. And look, um, you know, my mentor at Berkeley, Ken Waltz, a great scholar, he really understood the fundamental principle of what's known today in IR theory as offensive realism before anybody coined the term. As he used to say, you know, the thing about this, really exactly how he put it, the thing about being big, strong, and powerful is that when you have lots of capabilities, you're going to want to, going to, want to use them. You know, states with lots of power want more, and they want to expand. And the United States is no not exempt from that. And you see this in uh, Russia was weak when the Cold War ended and the U.S. took advantage of that to expand its sphere of influence, not only into the former Soviet satellites, but onto the very territory of the former Soviet Union itself. Well, let me give, let me give you a, a, a thought on that since we're really talking global politics here. If you look at China, and I'm, a, I'm an Asia guy more than a Europe guy. If, if you look at what China is doing, they are big, they are strong. You used to use the same, you know, the words that you were using, and and they are looking globally in, in, a, in a very big way. And the interesting thing, interesting dynamic about it, if you look at East Asia, and I spent a lot of time over there, they are separating national security issues from the commercial issues. And uh, I think you're, you're seeing that with, with China and other places as well, that uh, they uh, the Chinese are a threat, a security threat to the uh, the countries in East Asia, particularly ASEANs other than uh, Cambodia, which is sort of a client state right now in, in, uh, in ASEAN, since one, one negative vote in, in ASEAN can, can kill any idea. But, you know, th there are security issues. You're seeing uh, a lot of it, the way that Japan is looking at some of the issues, the Shinkaku Islands and the, the, the uh, worry that for more than 20 years now that China is looking at the Ryukyus. It's never recognized the, the sovereignty of uh, Japan over the Ryukyus, speaking of sovereignty. But they also trade like crazy. You know, they're the number one trading partners uh, in, in East Asia. The number one trading partners are, are usually uh, China. And they are, uh, they are sort of absorbing Chinese expansion in in a number of ways, but you have the security pipe over there, and then you got the the commercial pipe, and that's a that's a concept that uh, may kind of catch on in the future. So Chris has uh, also written quite a bit on how to deal with China, which, given that we're close to uh, uh, the end of our time together, uh, might provide a opportunity to uh, bring him back. I, Jim and Chris are uh, in the same foxhole on Ukraine. I bet a discussion of uh, China uh, might uh, <laughs> see a little bit more internecine conflict. Uh, so we'll put that on the uh, on the checklist. Maybe just as a, a last thing to uh, close on, Chris, I, I agree completely with Jim's initial assessment of your piece that it's morally courageous for saying stuff that I think in a lot of places or with a different audience would get you a lot of pushback. What has been the reaction to your piece? It's been out a month now. And uh, are you on the uh, Mitrovitz kill list in Kiev? Other great honors like that? Uh, I would suspect that uh, we're not terribly popular with the people in Kiev. Um, yeah, I find it very interesting that 
a lot of interesting podcasts of both people like you and me who are politically, you know, traditional conservatives. I think, unfortunately, that term has been sort of tarnished by uh, the way the Republican Party has gone the last 20 years. But, you know, those were like half conservatives. People like, like your podcast have had us on, people on the left who are sort of anti-interventionist uh, against American hegemony have had us on. I have not seen our article mentioned once in the New York Times or the Washington Post or the Financial Times, even though I know a couple of the columnists there and sent them the article. Um, so, yeah, the article's getting a lot of notice, but it's not being acknowledged in certain places. Um, and I, I find that depressing, not surprising, but depressing. So you're not being attacked. You're being frozen out or canceled. Isn't that what the kids do these days with uh, odious and, uh, you know, otherwise uh, retrograde attitudes? We've been airbrushed out of the Soviet encyclopedia. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Well, I I think, uh, though, that again, you know, to echo what Jim said at the uh, beginning of our session, people may not be talking about it, but I'm guessing that there are a lot of folks, especially uh, at lower levels in the U.S. government, who understand the truth of the history that you're telling and are, uh, you know, taking uh, a sucker from the fact that uh, folks like you and Ben uh, are willing to uh, use your bully pulpit to uh, be the Paul Harveys uh, of the uh, the Ukraine uh, story and uh, give uh, the American public the rest of it that they're not getting from uh, other places. If I could just add one quick thing, and we haven't really had a chance to get into it today because there are so many other interesting aspects. Well, one of the things that we really focus on in this article is the risk of nuclear escalation. And I think that in the foreign policy establishment here, um, that there's been a sort of complacency about this. I mean, what, the first and only time nuclear weapons were used was by the United States in August 1945. They haven't been used since. There's a nuclear taboo. Um, And you see this complacency in American policymakers' statements uh, about Ukraine war. Um, Oh, well, Putin has already laid down red lines, and we violated them a number of times. We've escalated. We've gone from giving Ukraine anti-tank weapons to howitzers, to HIMARS, to tanks, hopefully without the leopards, without the Maltese crosses. Uh, and now we're giving them F-16s. And each time that we've escalated, Putin hasn't done anything. So therefore, we shouldn't worry about the risks of escalation. Well, um, I give you two thoughts. One is if the Russians were to suffer a complete military reverse in Ukraine and be on the verge of losing this war, I think all bets are off about the Russians using tactical nuclear weapons. The same thing is if the Ukrainians were to be in a position to occupy, reoccupy, whatever the correct, politically correct terminology is here. Crimea, that there are red lines that the Russians have. And yet I think this, this we are just so complacent and so convinced that nobody will ever use nuclear weapons that we keep hoarding these risks of escalation. And I I think that that is a real danger here. That's one of the reasons why we should be concerned about ending this conflict. Does nuclear escalation keep you up at night, Jim? I think think everything that Chris just said is, should be listened to, put it that way. And and, uh, the other thing is, because I want to 
echo Mike what you said. This this article is something that should be read uh, by by mid level people too. I mean this this gives a chronology. That's one of the things that that really uh, impressed me when I was reading it. It 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 connects all the dots. It's not just you know a one uh, you know one dimensional article for or against. And and the people who who have not been exposed to that. Uh, um, that chronology will find it in in detail in here, and it you know it, I think it's gonna people who read it they're they're gonna be uh, thinking about things a lot differently. 